Welcome back to the In the Chill of the Night episode number 15. I'm here with Jonathan Green and Pete Forcelli. You probably remember Pete. He was in he was on episode six where he talked about sex money murder. I'm also joined by George Belsky, co-host for tonight's In the Chill of the Night. So after we recorded the episode with uh, Pete Vercelli, Sex Money Murder, I happened to be talking to my brother who said, hey, that's a great episode, but looking for a little bit more detail. You guys, you spoke for about an hour, but I think there's a lot more that can be said on Sex Money Murder. So that was uh, several months ago, and uh, I, I thought it best to maybe, hey, what would it be like to have Jonathan Green, an investigative journalist, who wrote the book, literally, on sex, money, murder, and Pete Forcelli to come back on and actually have a conversation. So I think, hey, George, uh, I think I apologize. I think you and I are going to be more in a listener mode than anything tonight. But uh, it'd be great to hear the, the two of these folks uh, chat about sex, money, murder, and uh, set the stage for you know what, what I think going back in, in time here was something uh, of extreme violence in New York City. So uh, thank God those folks are taken off the street. So Pete, welcome back. How are you? Doing good. Good to see you, fellas. And, uh, and Jonathan, welcome back as well. And, you know, I, I'm going to throw it over to you uh, first, uh, Pete, uh, since you have a pro at this, since you've been on the show before. Just can you tell us a little bit about yourself as it relates to the sex money murder? Uh, investigation. Sure, sure. I started with the New York City Police Department back in January 1987, uh, worked in the Bronx, primarily in the housing projects in the Bronx. And it, it, not too long after I started, the, the, you know, members of sex money murders names would pop up in, in a number of crimes. So, I mean, here when I was a rookie cop in uniform, I, I would hear uh, the names of some of the sex money murder members and uh, you'd start to hear about some of the heinous acts that they were involved with. And uh, so I spent 15 years there, and it actually, uh, my last case in the, with the New York City Police Department was the sex money murder racketeering case. So I was the lead NYPD detective on the case, and I worked with a gentleman named John O'Malley, who had actually retired from the Bronx Homicide Squad, um, which is where I was working when I worked on that investigation. And John had worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York as an investigator there. John was a legend. I mean, you know, John taught plenty of cops and, and federal agents how to work federal cases. So, um, you know, it was an honor and a pleasure to work with John. And so anyway, I left the NYPD in 2001, went to work with ATF, uh, was there for about 20 years, uh, started as an agent in New York. And there were still some of the trial aspects of sex, money, murder that were, were going on at that time, because that case had several different waves, um, three of them. The first one was worked with ATF. Um, the second one was kind of with DEA and FBI a little bit. And then the third one was all FBI because the, the, the gun violence had pretty much been taken care of. And we were looking at other aspects of their activity. And then I left New York, promoted, went to Phoenix for a while, uh, the headquarters, then uh, up to Canada for a little bit, which is, by the way, where I met Jonathan. Came back from Canada, went back to headquarters, went to Miami, um, back to headquarters. And then I was in charge of training for a while. And then I, I wrapped it up very recently. But yeah, I, I met Jonathan while I was assigned up in Canada, and he had reached out to me saying, "Hey, you know, uh, I'm a journalist, and I want to work on a, a book on on sex, money, murder." And as you can imagine, I mean, I had just come off of um, on say I was a whistleblower in that whole Fast and Furious mess, 
So uh, I, I had a bad taste in my mouth for journalists because of some of the stuff that happened with that particular um, matter. So initially, I was a little bit resistant to talking to Jonathan, but he was persistent, but a gentleman, and, and still is a gentleman. So, um, you know, I, I got to learn that he really started to delve into not just the crimes, but a lot of the folks that were involved on, on the criminal side of sex, money, murder, and really started to understand their lives and what they grew up with and, and how, you know, their formative years and how they became who they were. And um, he persuaded both John, who, John O'Malley, who was certainly no, um, you know, not a glory hound, not someone who's actively looking to speak to journalists. And still to this day, he's very, um, you know, he's very hands off. He actually uh, avoids uh, talking to reporters almost at all costs. So when, when Jonathan won John over, he won me over. Again, I have such respect for John O'Malley. Who respect Jonathan tremendously. Um, you know, I, I think I spoke to you, Jonathan. It was like 2013 when I was up in Canada. He actually came and spent a few days with us. My, my wife, I think, and I uh, sent him home with a, with a pretty significant hangover, if I'm not mistaken. But, <laughs> but she had to drive, by the way, from, from just outside of Toronto to, to Massachusetts. Uh, so I, I felt really bad when that happened. But um, and then the book actually um, didn't come out until I actually was in the hospital in Florida having um, some issues in 2000. And I believe it was 2018. So that should give you some idea how long Jonathan worked on this case and the amount of time wow. and energy and effort that he put into it. Um, and he nailed it. I mean, uh, I know. And Jonathan, I'm sure might touch on it in a little bit more depth. There's a lot more that he could have put in that book that he wrote. But like Billy Joel and the song The Entertainer, you know, you got to cut it down to 305. Uh, I think Jonathan had to cut some <laughs> stuff out to keep the publishers happy. But he, I mean, he knows that case better than I do, better than John does. He he lived it just like we did. He just lived it a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just let him take it from there. So, Jonathan, it sounds like he was trying to blow you off at first, but uh, you uh, you persisted, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, it sort of so it takes a little while, I think, to sort of win up, to win everyone over. And I had um, quite a job in the beginning because I not only had to get so Peace and John on my side, but I also had to get uh, so two guys who were in the gang um, on my side too, which was, um, uh, I mean, it was a challenge. It was a lot of ups and downs. We eventually um, established... I'm a relationship of uh, so sorts. And so then we began work and it was just, I was absolutely riveted uh, by these guys' lives, you know, where they'd sort of come from, how they managed to get into crime, how it all evolved. And so the New York at that time, you know, really was extremely violent. Um, the sort of uh, transition from heroin into crack sort of uh, democratized. I'm a drug industry, really, to a certain extent. Um, and it turned these sort of neighborhoods into war zones. And, you know, because these guys would sort of uh, war with other guys literally on the same so block over the so profits of crack. And, um, look, I mean, that's how the gang was birthed. Um, it sort of grew out of that uh, so chaos. Um, and... So then they became a blood set, and that's when things really um, so gathered force. But, I mean, originally I just wanted to sort of really understand their lives and how they got to where they were, you know. Wow. 
Well, so can you just uh, take us uh, a little bit about your background? Because obviously you didn't just start off doing sex, money, murder. And mm. with that jer- with that Jersey accent, where are you from in New Jersey? <laughs> right. Well, I think because that's the other thing I uh, to think the guys in the gang were so, uh, so taken <laughs> back at my accent. Um, I think it sort of uh, warmed them up a little bit. I mean, I was not a kind of threat in their eyes you know because i'm from slightly kind of slightly other um <laughs> so i mean that was a help you know um so let's see so i've been a journalist since i was 19 um wow to work on local newspapers in england um so specialized in crime i'm originally um then i moved up to london uh started to do a lot of I'm reporting around the globe. I mean, I've worked in uh, Colombia, China, Africa, uh, Sudan, uh, so Kazakhstan, um, places with sort of significant human rights abuses or um, uh, corrupt uh, regimes. Um, And, you know, so the sort of crimes sort of morph sort of more into sort of human rights stuff and I was originally working on a book about Jamaica because there'd been a big uh so wow. take down there of a drug boss um in an area called Totivoli Gardens and um I was working on that and that's how I came to know to John O'Malley and you know learned a bit more about the Bronx and he sort of called me out of the blue one day and said look I know you're um to work on this other thing, but I've got two guys in this gang who want to so tell their story. Um, wow. Would you like to meet up with them? I'm like, sure, you know. Um, so I met the first one in the US Attorney's Office, and then they sort of trusted me enough to meet in another place, and we all met and we sort of um, spoke about, you know, because the prospect of writing a book about the gang and who they were and and i mean at the time i didn't really know a whole lot about them you know i mean i hadn't really heard of tax money murder but then the more i sort of so dove in and you saw that they're mentioning all these sort of rap songs and naz and all these other guys have rapped about them and the leader of the gang so pistol pete i mean he's really a legend i mean he's a sort of legend in the underworld um so people revere him and um and it was this sort of ideology that i found really fascinating i mean it was warped and it was wrong and all that stuff but it was it was strange how this sort of gang had like started in the bronx and then got bigger and bigger and bigger and um i was talking to somebody last week and apparently sex money murder is the biggest uh so gang on the east coast now i mean but it it, it start, started in the Bronx and the projects there, you know. Um, but so then I started work on the book, and, and originally, because I hoped it would take, um, so two years, but that turned into five years. I mean, I just got d- deeper and so deeper, really, and, and hung out with these guys all the time, uh, so got to really understand them, how they think. Um, you know, and you learn about the gang life and how sort of uh, manipulative um, the guys are, sort of how it works in that regard. Um, 
and I mean the drama there's always constant uh <laughs> drama around these guys and um you know um it was exhausting <laughs> it was it was um you know um it was a rough ride for those uh so five years but I wanted to write a book that was completely authentic that that completely told the gang experience from multiple viewpoints so like that was the idea of Jonathan, it, you know. if, if you first met them in the the u.s attorney's office where were they in um in the process had they already been initially sentenced or were they were they just waiting uh further proceedings how how did that work well so both of them had ended up um cooperating and um so um at that point you know because the cases were done um it was over um and i think at, at that time they were trying to sort of readjust to sort of ordinary life which is really difficult if you've um so been involved in that life and also um because they'd actually worked on with the government um so their lives are not easy you know because they can be uh i mean anyone who's a snitch you know because you know right. what happens so um they were at this sort of um to juncture of their lives really and trying to work out where they were going what they were so gonna do and i think you know um one of them should got uh to time served i mean even though like he'd done a very um so public murder in soundview um so i think he only served like to six years i want to say um and the other one cooperated as well so i think he did like you know so probably like the same amount of time so they were still you know um young and the events were still so fresh um where we were able to sort of relive the whole thing you know so from when they were kids i mean all the way through up to where they were you know and uh Hey Pete, just set the stage for us again about Soundview. Um, you know, your 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 vantage point certainly investigative, and I'd love for Jonathan to sort of fill in the blanks, particularly as you just described that this all started from when these 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 men were kids. But Pete, maybe you could just sort of fill in the blanks on the sex money murder, where 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 we're talking about, what period of time, and. Uh, what was involved here in terms sure. of carnage? No, sex money murder, where it started, it was in the Soundview projects in the Bronx. And uh, Soundview is in a kind of a weird place because, I mean, obviously the Bronx has public transportation. They have the four train, the six train. Um, but Soundview is kind of tucked away in an area of the Bronx that you don't really have a reason to go through unless you live there. And it, it butts against Soundview Park, which is a big park that it expends over to the Long Island Sound. So, the, the weird thing about Soundview is because of it was where it was, it was a difficult housing project to go in and and police. Uh, a lot of violence. The heroin was there when heroin wasn't anywhere else in the Bronx, um, as Jonathan pointed out. Then crack became king. Um, it's weird because the sex money murder crew was basically people from Soundview that had started to expand into the Castle Hill project, which is about three quarters of a mile away if you were to drive um, kind of north. And then the Bronx River projects wasn't far away. So they expanded these other projects, but Soundview was their hub. Um, very, very violent place. Uh, a lot of murders. 
Um, on the sunniest day, Southview looked dark and dismal. Same thing with Bronx River Projects. They were just places that you, they weren't great places to be. In fact, it, when, when he started working the sex money murder case, we reached out to some of the, the, uh, the, the technical folks from ATF because the case started working with ATF and asked them to go and take some photos and put up poll cameras. And, and these were seasoned agents. They came back and like, hey, man, where the fuck did you send us? I mean, they were truly shocked by how dark Soundview was. Um, like I said, it just it wasn't a place that was comfortable to be. Now, the other thing that's kind of ironic, and, and Jonathan delved into it, is, you know, the, the people that we were dealing with by the time the second money murder case started, and it took off after a double homicide that happened at a, a, at a very public, we spoke about it the last episode, that very public football game on Thanksgiving Day of 1997. But um, the, the people we were investigating, I had been running into since they were young kids, like in their mid-teens, slinging drugs in the projects in the Bronx. And that's kind of the thing that, that troubles me about where we're at today is, you know, they were in jail for a couple hours. They'd come out and continue to sell drugs. You know? And as they made more money, then they, it was turf to defend. Then they would use extreme violence to defend that turf. Well, with what's going on now in the city, and I know it's a different topic because we're focusing on the book. I'm, my concern is we're going back to where we were. You know, I mean, if there's money to be made and no one's going to jail because they're getting a slap on the wrist, um, which is what they they did, um, things went out of control. So, the, 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 and that's where the federal case came in handy. And that's candidly why I left the NYPD when I saw the effect that we can have as federal agents. And Jonathan chronicles it in his book about proffering and federal sentencing. You know, Peter Rolock, the head of, of sex, money, murder, went into prison um, and he, he was known as a badass so what happened was he was because he was respected by the uh, other gang members when he went they tried to indoctrinate him into the bloods he said no no i'm only going to come in if i can start my own set well they let him so he built his network in prison and that's what a lot of people don't realize when you when you have people cycling in and out of the same prison this instance rikers island where they're going to go in beat other people from the neighborhood build a bigger and stronger criminal network meet other people Exactly. Educated. So by, by taking the case federally, we took them out of that, that cycle and we sent them to prisons elsewhere. And candidly, it was the fear that they had of, of spending time in federal prison, somewhere where their family can't visit them, um, that, that led some of them to come forward. And obviously, we had to build trust with them, which Jonathan also chronicled very well. We had to build trust to interview them because we weren't just interviewing them one time. Some of these people we would proffer 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 times. So you always had to leave that door open and build a relationship and build trust with them um, because that was the only way we were able to, mark, to make the case. But the reality was it was taking that case federally that made all the difference in the world. And it cleaned up the Soundview area for a little while. But like anything else, and we all know this, when you create that vacuum and there's a lucrative drug market there, people are going to come fill it. And what I was saying earlier, and, and we spoke about this, uh, Jonathan and I, back in the day, is because Soundview was in this weird area, like we tried to send in uh, undercovers from Bronx Narcotics. Well, people in Southview, if they didn't know you, they weren't going to sell to you. So it, the stuff that we did traditionally in other areas in the Bronx didn't work there. So they would only sell to people they knew. So that's why bringing people in on lesser charges, gun charges, and flipping them and proffering them and going out and chasing down that evidence, that's what made that case. It was like true detective work, which is what I It truly, I mean, it, it won me over. That's why, like I said, I left the NYPD. I loved what I was doing there. It's certainly different. And John O'Malley taught me so much. I mean, I was an experienced detective by the time Sex Money Murder started. But John was so in, in just completely um, knowledgeable about the federal system that I was sold. I mean, absolutely. No question about it. I was leaving the NYPD once I did that case. 
Jonathan, t- tell us about the the uh, the characters that we're talking about here. Uh, I know you mentioned Pistol Pete, charismatic guy, right? Yeah, I mean they all are. I mean they've all got larger than life, um, so personalities, and they all have these uh, so colorful names. So, so the two guys I was um, spending all the time with, uh, so one was called uh, so Pipe. And he was like the baby of the crew, um, but he was um, uh, so trusted by so Pistol Pete. Um, so he actually um, so took over the organization um, when Pete went to jail. So through his eyes, um, I mean, I was able to really sort of chart the whole organization from to when they were born all the way up until um so they were taken down um and the other guy i was with uh chug um he was the one who so did a very uh so public murder um so thanksgiving i'm in the bronx um so during a football game just sort of marched out in the middle of the game um so him and a whole bunch of other guys, and they just, um, like, when they opened fire. And wow. uh, uh, so two guys were killed um, because, a lot of, because a lot of other people got hit. And it just sort of struck me in the beginning that the sort of brazenness of these guys to walk out there in broad daylight and open fire with, like, I don't know, so 30 witnesses <laughs> and, and not really blink an eye. You know, and that sort of shows you um, really the power of the gang and, and um, you know, the sort of fear uh, that so people living there had of them. Um, hey, Jonathan, we, we, neighbors. Yeah. we often hear that gangs have uh, almost a stronger attraction than sometimes families. And you said that uh, these, these characters because that's what they are in your book, as well as uh, in real life, right? Mm. Um, there was no other option for these guys? That was no, it? Just a gang? No, no. And I mean, that was apparent sort of really, really early on in my work is, uh, I mean, all the fathers are in jail and the mums are like um, struggling. And, um, you know, I think uh, Pipe's mum was on drugs. So... You know, it was just her and I think uh, so five kids, I think, in the family. Um, and they sort of struggled every day. I mean, they sort of struggle with addiction and uh, so struggle with money. And um, the only people who really understood were sort of other young guys because in the same, uh, I mean, the same life. And they, and they came to just sort of, lean upon each other and of course the guys in the neighborhood with all the money and the cars and the girls and the flash and all the rest of it are the drug dealers so that's who they emulate and that's who they want to be um so i mean those are the role models um and in the end because they ended up so killing one of the guys that emulated and uh so taking over his turf you know so which is the way it goes um, but the really sad thing in, you know, sort of all of it is that they always end up turning on each other and right, r- right, right at the heart of this, um, um, is jealousy and this sort of 
basic sort of human negative emotion. And they, you know, they're sort of envious of, I'm another guy who's got more money or this or that or the other, or like a disrespect. And I mean, that's when the violence starts. And, you, you know, they sort of never managed to, um, to rise above the violence. And I mean, it was their downfall, but they were more sort of violent than sort of anybody else, um, which in the beginning um, was good because it meant that, you know, because they could have the power. But, but really then in the end, I mean, the violence just sort of ate them all from the inside. Um, and it was their downfall. Um, but they make a mistake in the beginning of, say, thinking that all the other guys in the gang are their brothers, and they don't really understand that, you know, everyone so turns on you. And, right. And, I mean, that's what happened. Jonathan, you know? by, by the time you started working this story, you had, you had done crime reporting in, in the U.K. Um, you'd been around the world um, and, and looking at various regimes. Um, did you notice or were you able to draw any similarities between um, power is executed by the sex money murder guys and how you'd seen it done in other parts of the world? Anything, any recurring themes that you noticed between those, that, that quest for power and how it was done? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really good point. I mean, I sort of um, worked in Tibet which is under martial law. Um, and I'd sort of snuck in there um, a few years ago to write in my first book. And, um, you know, and there's this sort of omnipresent fear that people were terrified of speaking with you. You know, people didn't want to talk to journalists because of the fear of repercussions. And I um, to found all that in Soundview, that the ordinary... So people who lived in the projects were too um, scared, sort of, even after the gang was taken down, to like sp um, speak out about them. And so sort of numerous, so times I might have interviews organised, and so then at the last minute, so people would say, "Oh, you know, we don't really want to <laughs> speak about the gang, you know, because they go after their neighbours." I mean, the, I mean that's what they do. But but I've um you know, worked in sort of two gang areas in Rio and um, uh, to Jamaica and other places like that. And I mean, it was exactly the same thing, but it was in the US. I mean, that's what really sort of blew me away. I mean, if you're sort of working in Colombia, say, you know, like, you know, it's a failed state that they've got serious issues with things there. And corruption and all the rest of it but you never expect that same um level of power of the gangs uh to which they had in the bronx and that really sort of shocked me i think you know when i was working on it and and i and i'm uh, sorry he, go ahead george um you know we, we we strive in law enforcement to build these um bridges between law enforcement and the police and we know that you know for the most part unless we get uh neighborhood and community cooperation um you know going after a gang going after um you know folks slinging dope and shooting people it, it's very very hard um how did you guys work around that 
in the Bronx when you said it was so cloistered uh, and such a a uh, closed environment? How did you do that? How did you bridge that gap? Yeah, there, there were two things, honestly, George. One is, again, taking these folks out of that cycle. They're not going to Rikers Island, and some of them were shocked. They were, when we arrested them, they thought we were full of crap, especially because at the time, I was an NYPD detective in the Homicide Squad working with the Fed. So as you know, George, how that works. I was deputized to work federal cases. So when, when we would arrest them and show NYPD badges, their assumption was, oh, great, I'm going to go to Central Booking. Uh, in five days will be <laughs> grand jury day, um, and I'll be out on day number six. And then I'll do what I got to do, and I'll make my court appearances and, you know, you know, pound sand. Um, it was interesting when we, would, when we would bypass the Bronx courthouse and get onto the FDR drive going south. I had hardcore, oh and Jonathan boy. turned these stories, I had hardcore guys, murderers, crying in the car because they knew that this was different. Now, the other thing is, Hedley, um, you know, look, and I love my profession, but not everybody that's in my profession or my former profession are professionals. A lot of them have been lied to by cops. Like, hey, tell me a story, and, you know, I'm going to talk to the DA, and you're going to get a break. And they wouldn't follow through on that. So it was a weird tactic. Like, sometimes we'd be able to build trust with these guys. Other times I would look at their rap sheet and kind of get a, a, a read off of them and say, this person's not going to talk. So our tactic would be like, hey, what you're going to do is we're going to take you to the precinct. We're going to fingerprint you. We're going to take you down to pretrial services. We're going to fingerprint you again. You're going to meet pretrial services people. They're going to recommend whether or not you get a bail package. You're going to get a, we would explain the whole process saying, look, we know cops have lied to you in the past. So we would just tell them what was going to happen and being honest with them saying, hey, you know, you're going to have a, um, uh, you know, uh, a conference, defense conference with the judge at that point, we're probably going to supersede, uh, which means you're going to get indicted on something else. So my suggestion to you is to talk to your lawyer. Your lawyer works for you, um, you know, and, and you're going to be working for you and get yourself out of this hole that you dug yourself into. So rather than sit there and try to talk to them, because some of them are like, fuck you, I'm not talking to you. So but basically just explaining to them and being honest with them through this entire process uh, was important to build trust. There were times we needed to do reverse proffers. Because they wouldn't come in, so we'd call them, we'd pull them, we'd get a read of habeas corpus, pull them out of jail, bring them to the U.S. Attorney's Office, tell them again what's going on, send them back. And when they realized we were being genuine and not lying to them, a lot of them would come around. And then it became, all right, now that we have an actual conversation with some of these people, um, you know, we'd have to really work very hard to build trust with them. Because they're talking about people that they grew up with, Jonathan pointed out. In fact, it's funny, funny story. One of the most violent to these guys and also the guy like he there was one instance at one of the defendant conferences it happened at this time there were 12 defendants so the marshal service decided well we'll put them in the jury box for when they go see the judge well this guy was hardcore he decides it's time for a standoff with the marshals so there is this standoff in the courtroom with the judge there uh where the marshals basically had a call for like legions of marshals to come in it turned into like a complete melee so we had to then go and we, we actually met this guy up at a, a jail in upstate New York, Putnam County Jail, again, for this whole reverse profit thing. Um, the violent guy was already not cooperating with law enforcement, didn't like his accommodations in prison. He was raising hell. We eventually won him over. And it was by being honest with him. And, and, and that honesty has to continue from day one to the end. And the truth is, and, jo and Jonathan um, knows this, those, those guys now to this day, even though they did their time and, and came out. They have a lot of respect for O'Malley and myself because they they us as honest guys. You know, in a world where a lot of people weren't very honest with them, frankly. So I mean, that's the thing, George. It's trust. 
And that's why community policing back in the day really worked because you had to work hard to build that trust. I mean, you, you want to reimagine policing. I, I, when I hear that, I just I cringe. Um, look, we, we, we lose our way because we chase shiny balls. We went from total patrol concept policing, community policing, intel-led policing. All of that stuff works, but you can't abandon the good stuff to chase the shiny ball. And, and community policing and talking to people and getting to understand people and having empathy is everything in our profession. And, and look, in some places we abandoned it because we're, we're chasing 911 calls. So it, it was that. It was the trust and, and knowing these guys, knowing inside and out how they live, who they associated with. Just it, it, that was the important part. That's what that's what got us there, frankly. Hey, hey Jonathan, uh, I just want to pull on what Pete said just a little bit that that read. Um, as cops, we have this uh, perspective of of the bad guy or the bad girl, right? Uh, and 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 to your point, Pete, you know, for us sometimes it's it well most of the time it's business. What what are the bad guys? What 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 is uh, what, what did Pistol Pete? What did Suge? I'm saying his name right. Pipe. What were their thoughts? Sure. What what are their thoughts on the police? Like, how do they view us? Were we a nuisance? Uh, were were they a force to be reckoned with? Um, to Pete's point, where did they just see uh, cops as uh, as liars? Like, what what was that like when you had those conversations about what was their thoughts on, on the police? Well, um, I mean, they sort of hate hated the police. I mean, there's no so doubts about that. I mean, I've got one sort of. Um, scene I remember in the book and the cops sort of turned up on the corner in the projects to to arrest one of the dealers um so so Pistol Pete got all the guys up on the roof and they opened uh so fire on the police um wow so they you know they were so quite happy to shoot um you know, there'd be a lot of uh, so bravado in when they're like describing interactions like with the police. I mean, there was one night, I think, I mean, there was a big sort of uh, so shootout um, between them and other so dealers in the project. And it's, you know, um, extensive amount of gunfire over, you know, half an hour or so i mean it was um so so pretty much a running uh so gun battle and they sort of so told me that so the police um waited until you know because everyone had stopped firing because then they actually so came in the project so you know they'd so brag and say oh you know because they were scared of us now you know you can you know, to take that with a pinch of salt, you know, I mean, I don't really know all the ins and outs of it, but they like to brag about it. Um, <clears throat> but I think as uh, Pete said, I mean, once they ended up in the feds and because they met O'Malley and Pete, these were the first cops they'd met who had real power uh, so because of the federal thing, but but they didn't lie, you know, like Pete and Sir John were very like straight with them. Um, and I think they just found that really um, so disarming. They weren't sort of used to straight talk because everything in the gang lies, you know, um, it's all lies and, 
you know um i mean that's what happened so um i think even now i mean years later i mean they still to call o'malley on a regular basis and his um something of a father figure you know to these guys who never really had real dads um so it's kind of really fascinating i think you know that's often what's sort of missing um i think like the general uh so public you know doesn't really understand this sort of so dynamic so between the bad guys um and the cops at times because they often have this very uh close kind of so bond really i mean something sort of understand each other you know um i mean o'malley was uh uh so born and raised in that neighborhood so he knew it like so just as well as they did you know um so all those things really like established a level you know jonathan you you spent a lot of time with these guys and and uh from from my experience as uh as an atf agent you know there, there are a lot of folks who are involved in gang life that, you know, they'll boost cars, they'll do burglaries, they'll do strong arm. But when it comes to picking up a gun and going after somebody and actually shooting folks, there's a, there's some folks that won't cross that line. But it seems that that mm. these folks, at least several of them that you talk about in the book, they they had no, they had no qualms about that. Was was that something they grew up with, or they just got comfortable with it? What what do you think was, you know, what was th for them? Um, they did they just didn't have that uh, they just didn't have that hesitancy to go shoot. Well, they sort of um, start started with the guns at a really sort of early age. Um, so Pipe um, did his first sort of shooting um, at the age of eleven. So he was actually told by so pistol pete to shoot at this guy in the projects and he did and you know i so write about things in the book and he said he went from feeling like a very scared 11 year old um living in a very tough neighborhood to having this enormous uh so feeling of power um so that the gun gave um and I think it was the same for so both the guys in the book. I mean, once they saw uh, how a gun would so make people scared of you, and so particularly if you actually um, murdered somebody and you had a body in their sort of um, slang, um, I mean, so then you had a reputation, and that reputation would. Um, to keep you safe so it sort of turns everything on its head really as to sort of how we live in the normal world um in the i mean their world more violence is good and if you have a murder and so people know you've uh so done a murder um that actually um so keeps you safe so they sort of started to use that sort of more and more and they would you know so quite happy to shoot and you know um i have a sort of uh story in the book where so one of the guys i interviewed um is actually arguing like with another guy i'm on the street it's like who gets the murder of the guy so coming out of a nightclub 
and they both really wanted it and they were sort of arguing over you know who would do it um so that's where it ended up you know amazing well he, he, even even like when we jonathan talked about Shug being a participant in that thanksgiving day homicide there were actually four shooters that day and uh and the plan was that you know we we're gonna they were gonna murder the, the twins and a bodyguard um they did kill the bodyguard and one of the twins the other twin was shot but survived uh, and then the plan was to shoot into the crowd. If, the, if we're shooting into the crowd, they're not going to stop and turn around and look at our faces. So imagine that. You know, I mean, they're shooting into a crowd of innocent people, not over the crowd, into the crowd. Um, but one of the individuals uh, was kind of newer to sex money murder and didn't have any bodies on him, or they didn't think he did. So the the, the idea was, well, we're going to make him a shooter. And the, the reason was, well, if once he has bodies, it's harder for him to flip or cooperate or be a witness. So, I mean, there was also this encouragement from within the gang that if you didn't have a body, we're going to help you get one, um, which is just obviously troubling when you think of things. But the other thing that was really hard to do working in that, in that project is that not everyone that lived in Soundview was a bad person. And Jonathan and I spoke. It was heartbreaking in the mornings or, or even like it worked in the afternoon when school ended to come home or drive through uh, the area um, and see, you know, parents come out, grab their kid as fast as they could off the school bus and go inside. And you never see those kids again because they couldn't come out and play in the schoolyard. They couldn't go out and play in the in the grass median where these gangsters played football. The kids couldn't. Um, but you, you wondered, you know, as a cop and, and then later as a detective, like what chance do these kids have? And, and what about the parents? You know, we, people talk about, you know, the Rikers Island and being in prison. There are people that live in these projects who are good people that were working class people or trying to get a job that were prisoners who, who did nothing wrong. They didn't violate any law, but because they lived in an area where this violence went on unabated, they themselves became, in essence, prisoners, which was a difficult thing to see. You know, what's remarkable to me, as you said in that last story, Jonathan, uh, age 11 yeah. to pick up a gun. And uh, in my own experience, and, and I would I'd sort of pinpoint it to be like eight or nine, you know, working in... Uh, in some of these uh, oppressed areas where open air drug markets, it seemed like the kids that were on the street, if they were six, seven, even eight years old, if, if a police car came up or a fire engine, they were kids. They were, they were curious and interested, but then it just seems to change. And, um, and I, and I'm sure both both you and Pete are going to tell me because that's right about when the gangs find usefulness in in them as lookouts, as as couriers, as as employees. Um, do you find that to be the case? I didn't. I, 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 in that area, I, I think because of the violence, and it could have been that a lot of the parents were afraid to have their kid come up to our car and say, "Hey, officer," something like that. That even the younger kids, well, you saw this in other parts of, of the Bronx, like the Bronx isn't all bad. Um, but in that neighborhood, little kids didn't come up and talk. Yeah, the firemen, yeah, we love firemen, but no one no one came and talked to the police. I, and I think it was out of fear, you know, that we, the parents would discourage the kids from, hey, don't go say hello to the police officer because you might wind up, you know, getting stomped on, even though you're a six, seven-year-old kid. They, they set the tone there early. And again, Soundview was a kind of a different place. How about you, Jonathan? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that they were so um, scared of being seen, so talking with the police, because that would immediately have everyone start sort of, well, I mean, why were you doing that? And, 
to what did you say? So um, there was sort of very little of that. I mean, I don't think they had any, uh, you know, so positive interactions really with the police at all, you know. Wow. Yeah. So you, you, you brought up a community policing. Getting over that hurdle is really difficult. Yeah. And once you let go of it, it's hard to get it back. That's that's one of the challenges. You know, I mean, it takes a long time to establish trust with the community. And look, the other thing that bothers me with this kind of gentler policing, and I'm not for heavy handed policing, but look, when you have a neighborhood that's that's rough, it's not easy and it's not pretty to make that neighborhood safe. You know, there's the policing is not always a pretty thing. Um, the sad part is when you have that safety and security, you let it go. It's ugly to get that back. Um, and at what cost? You know, I mean, so I, I get it. All of this reimagined talking. Look, policing certainly um, has areas where it can improve. And, and we should be putting community trust above all other things. But I just I worry about where we've gone as a profession, especially when like I said, many departments abandoned community policing entirely. One of the high points of my career and Jonathan did a whole chapter about it was walking a foot post in the projects in the Bronx, getting to know people, getting to understand that they were no different than I am. Um, just different set of circumstances. Um, very important, very formative part of my career to have to be alone on foot, sometimes six at night till two in the morning, um, learning how to talk to people, understanding that your, your mouth is your best weapon, not the nightstick, not the gun, not even the radio, learning how to talk to people. Such an important part of, uh, of policing. And you, you don't learn that anywhere else as effectively as you do in candidly and community policing. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Um, you know, we've come a long way with how um, we work stuff, especially uh, ballistic evidence. Um, would, would some of the techniques we use now with NIBIN and how we treat it as an intel tool, uh, would that have helped with this had we been doing that kind of stuff early on would it would it would have gave you some better um uh, some better leads you could have gone after stuff early yes uh, you know uh, it's interesting and i'll, I'll look i'm going to speak candidly george you know me and, and it might upset some people at, at my old agency atf um Yes. And look, in the sex money murder case, there was an example where one of the cooperators took us to a bag of guns at Soundview Park. We dug them up. Uh, we put them through Nibin, um, and we got the Nibin results back uh, sometime after the trial. So it was useless by that time. You know how it works. I mean, it was not timely. Uh, we weren't able to identify the other shootings till after people were. It was it was painful. Um, Look, I think that that is a tremendous tool, crime gun intelligence. And I know, Ray, I'm speaking to one of the godfathers of crime gun intelligence. But one of the things that, that, that troubles me that I see with some agencies, and it goes back to what I said even about community policing, is, look, NIBIN is great. Crime gun intelligence is great. But you also need to balance that out with effective interviewing and relentless following up of leads. And I see some agencies, and I see to some degree even ATF, it's like, well, interviewing is not that important. You know, I, it, you know and look, people will deny that. I'm telling you, it's true. Um, and that's where I used to push back. Look relationship building yeah you could put a gun tie a gun to the crime scene that gun could have changed hands five or six times between that shooting and when you recovered it and and in the bronx i could have changed hands five or six times in 48 hours because there was such a thing as a community gun so I, I, it just troubles me when we put so much weight and we should be putting a tremendous amount of weight don't get me wrong in crime gun intelligence but you need to balance that out with proffering and interviewing 
because there's a human intelligence portion of that that I think often gets lost in that equation. And when we were doing Operation Trigger Lock, which is actually how Sex Money Murder kind of started, which was taking felons in possession and proffering the living hell out of them, we, we were solving, we were creating racketeering cases. We were solving murders left and right. We, I mean, Sex Money Murder was probably the biggest case we had going on in a gang unit at the time. But there were four or five other cases that all started as 922G cases. And George, I know this is going to resonate with you. I used to go crazy when I would hear agents talk about roadkill. Oh, I just got a, you know, a, a, an adopted case at the 922G. Well, it's roadkill if you'll let it be roadkill. If you don't go there and thoroughly debrief that defendant or br- come back later on when they're sitting in jail for a while with the walls closing in on and try to proffer them, well, you just, you've made that case roadkill. Um, I, I had several very big cases. Sex Money Murder is one of my biggest, the, the three biggest cases. Each of my three big cases started as 922G cases that proffers turned into much bigger cases. So I used to get upset when I would hear all this focus on, on certain tools and abandoning or not focusing on others. And I just think that interviewing and human interaction is just as important as a lot of the evidence that we, we actually get in somebody's scenes. Because like I said, sometimes you tie that gun to that scene, but you're not putting it in somebody's hand at the time of the shooting without that interview, without that proffer, without following up leads relentlessly. And, you know, that, that's, that's my time on my soapbox. Right, Jonathan? Indeed. <laughs> no, but it's all troopy. I mean, that's what it took. I mean, you know, because we spoke about um, all this at huge sort of length and sort of how hard it was to actually run down the bad guys. I mean, you're so dealing uh, with a wall of silence. I mean, it's very difficult. So anytime you can get any of these guys to um, speak, I mean, it's key, you know. Yeah, and, and for the, the listeners who may not know what Pete's talking about, a 922 G case, 18 uh, United States uh, Code, uh, 922 G is the, the, the law that makes it illegal for a convicted felon and some other prohibited folks to possess firearms or ammunition. And that was a, a bread and butter case for, for most ATF agents. Uh, a convicted felon uh, found in possession of a firearm and off you go. And uh, you're right, a lot of times, those don't get expanded to where we need to go. Um, you know, that that uh, the investigator, especially the federal agent that's supposed to look under the rock that's under the rock. You right. know, your your job is to keep digging and, and turn that roadkill into sex money murder. So yeah, that and intel is great, but at the end of the day, if you're not using that, put somebody in jail or make an arrest or gather further information or stop the next shooting before it occurs, you're kind of, kind of, kind of wasting your time. Yeah. We, we, look, Jonathan did his work by sitting down and talking to people and interviewing people and I mean, yep. read the book. I mean, it just, he did a phenomenal job, but I was always shocked, George, to see how afraid, um, and this wasn't just that he did, I mean, in many departments and I worked up in Canada for a little while. So I interacted with those cops. I worked in Phoenix. It always blew my mind how afraid some cops are and, and agents and detectives to sit down in an interview room and, and have a real in-depth, um, honest, open, um, but at the same time, confrontational dialogue with a suspect. Um, and look, I, I'm not going to lie. Was, every time I went into the interview room, I went in there nervous. I'd have to de-escalate by talking about other stuff, building rapport. I'd often talk about the rap sheet for a long time and, and first to see if they were full of shit because obviously we know Fingerprint comparison is what gets you <laughs> on that sheet. Um, so uh, I wasn't there for this one and that one. You knew they were lying. 
but also gave me time, frankly, to get my blood pressure and my heart rate down. Because when I went, I wanted to, I wanted to solve my case. I went in there. I was, I was energized and nervous. But I, I was always shocked to see how afraid some of my younger investigators were and some of the detectives I worked with were to go there. And you know, they would keep kicking the can down the road. With, as, as you know, sometimes there's a point where you got to say, hey, man, we need to bring this guy in to talk to him. And, and there were many times where I would just see the, they, they would not wanting to do that. Even when they had overwhelming evidence and knew their case, they were afraid of having that interview, which is an interesting thing to see, actually. Because it's, it, it, in my opinion, it's, it, it's really the bedrock of a good investigator is, is the ability to sit there and, and talk to people and gather evidence and match up what you're getting from people with the physical evidence that you have at hand. So, Law enforcement, like leadership, is all about relationships. Um, and, and every time you go in to do an interview, it's a relationship. And um, Jonathan certainly is a journalist, an investigative journalist as well. Um, I'm sure you had to establish those relationships as, as well. What, other, other than your unique accent, which everybody did, uh, what, what were some of those things that helped you um, get to know these folks? Well, it was literally just hanging out with them. So rather than sort of firing uh, questions at them, it was just, so talking about music or um, so talking about their family or memories they had, like one of the sort of things I would ask, well, let's to go back to a really happy time before, you know, all this happened, um, you know, to tell me about to growing up and they'd have these, you know, stories about to girlfriends or, uh, you know, early stuff, just sort of, normal things and i think that's how we were able to um, establish a rapport you know and the other thing too is that you have to sort of uh, share a little about yourself um i mean there's no way i think that you know i would have got the um to the depth of um relationship with them and without sort of so speaking about my life and um those types of things so you're really um establishing a rapport which is on a very so personal level and i think it's only when you've established that um is you begin to get the real facts you know what really happened in the middle of the gunfight or what's going through a guy's head so just just before he murders a guy you know these are the things i really wanted but in order to reach that point um you know like you have to start out slow and um i think with those guys it's like the more we sort of hung out and we'd like sort of drive around the bronx and um you know and we'd have a beer you know go, go, go into a bar and have a beer um and you know just um to get the lie of the land and i think you know like i mean that's how i did it you know, and I think, like, you know, like everyone sort of really so kind of different things in their approach. But I've always sort of uh, so found if you treat so people well and want to understand them on a sort of human level, um, so they respond in kind, you know. And um, I think that's that, you know, that's how things went, you know. Yeah. Were, were they uh, were they intrigued at all by you because? You know, a lot of the, a lot of times, folks, especially that grow up in somebody's uh, depressed neighborhood, they they don't even get out of their neighborhood, let alone their city or their country. 
but yet here's a guy who you know coming to talk to them that's been you know for for to, to put it mildly all around the world in a bunch of different places uh and now you're taking an interest in them did that did that kind of um intrigue them i guess i think so i mean i think they you know and they had a look at my work on my website and some of the things i've done um and they were just really fascinated and how does it work and you know um so when you arrive in the middle of africa and you're doing this how does that work you know and you say well because you have a fixer so you to pay like a local guide and they help you with the interviews and you know um so all that i mean they found um interesting but i think sex money murder was sort of very unusual in that they actually um established a lot of the drug uh so corridors so they were really going all over the place i mean they um established uh some markets in buffalo um new jersey they were uh coming up to Springfield. So these guys were always on the road. So they were sort of slightly different to the normal yeah. guys in the projects in that they were really more ambitious. Um, and I think they had a sort of curiosity about things, um, certainly about me, you know? <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's how it went, you know? Hey, hey Jonathan, like, <laughs> as you're describing this and, and you're talking about building a rapport you know, as an investigator, there there are certain lines that you have to draw because of uh, officer safety. So yeah. here you are, you're out alone with these guys that, you know, a couple of years before they got bodies under their belt and, and you're talking to them about anything that they'll describe. What is that like for for you? I mean, are you at any way concerned? I mean, I, I'm sure. You know, there's a notion of trust here, but are, yeah. are you are you trusting them as opposed to trusting well, them? Well, it's a matter of uh, so blind faith, I think. I mean, I think if you're going to, you know, I mean, there is a time to worry. Um, but when you're sort of rolling around with them, um, you know, you're just trying to, to roll with the punches. And I mean, there were um, a couple of times um, when I was with, one of them and like we were in a bar once and all these guys so turned up and they actually uh so thought i was a cop you know and um everything turned in the bar i mean the whole mood changed it got very ugly like more guys came and they're like so what the hell is he doing here and all this stuff and you know who the fuck is he you know and um you know, things were beginning to go a little bit toe south. So I had to sort of de-escalate <laughs> and to make my excuses. I mean, did you call no, Pete? No, no, I just, <laughs> um, no, because he was a long way away. I think he would have got there in time, you know. Um, but there was another time, you know, so we were in the street and this guy, recognized the guy i was with and i think they knew that he'd actually cooperated and more guys started so coming out of the buildings and the guy i was with said look I, so we really need to get out of here and i mean you know and if he so thinks it's bad then <laughs> like you can only imagine so what's going to happen so you know there was a so a couple of times where we had to move 
so quite quickly. Um, so, you know, but uh, I mean, that's the nature really of the job, isn't it? I mean, this is what we do, so. Hey, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was once reported or, or said that John Gotti said, hey, someday you're going to miss me. And uh, I always took it as he was sort of referring to the organized nature that he put in place in terms of a crime in, uh, in New York. Um, do we miss those folks at Sex, Money, Murder? Were they more organized than what we see on the street today in terms of violence? Or were they over the top then? And, and, and where are we at today? Is this comparable today? Or is this even crazier than it was with Sex, Money, Murder? And I'll, I'll throw that out to both of you. Yeah, I, I would say it's funny because, like, as Jonathan knows, um, these guys were socializing with um, celebrities. Uh, you know, Tyra Banks, there's pictures of Peter Rolock that we got in a search warrant with Tyra Banks. Tyson Beckford was uh, putting money in Pete's commissary, the, the famous model. And people were like a gas, like, oh, my God, these people hanging out with these gangsters. And then I would say, wait, wait a minute, you know, they were gangsters that used to hang out back in the day with Sinatra and company. So I didn't see right. that. It was, you know, I mean, it was a similar dynamic. I think the difference is, generally speaking, the Italian mafia didn't kill you for looking at them the wrong way or, or um, over, you know, uh, some minor disrespect as you, you know, in a diner together. Um, these guys for street rep did. So I, I think there's a, a distinction there. Um, you know, I, I look, criminals are criminals. I have no use for either, frankly. But, um, you know, I think that's the, the big difference here is that, you know, uh, in these mob neighborhoods, if you weren't another mobster, you probably weren't going to get killed by them. But these guys, man, at the drop of a hat, if you did something to piss them off, you were likely to get shot. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. No, I mean, that's the way it is with them. Um, so working with them was like that, you know, you always sort of, I mean, anything could turn really in a split second. I mean, they're very volatile short tempers um and it can go bad you know really fast but um so funnily enough it was about probably a year ago and i met a guy in the mob who'd um to read my book and he was absolutely amazed at how violent and the guys in the gang were and he's like so they really did that i'm like yeah they did you know they opened fire over nothing um and he was actually so quite shocked you know so um it sort of shows you really the sort of to contrast i think with sort of um so people like the mob who are you know you know people don't get sort of whacked until there's a very so good reason most of the time um but with the guys in the crew i mean it could really be over nothing i mean over a glance the wrong way or a girlfriend or you know a very small uh small slight and it would end up in a murder you know well, the other thing, too, is, you know, organized crime, um, they didn't want police attention because it was bad for business. Uh, right. These guys didn't care. You know, I mean, if anything, it was good for their reputation. And their reputation is their mm. business in a way. So. Mm. so back in the 80s and 90s, that part of the Bronx was, I think, per capita, one of the most violent in the United States. Do you guys attribute it to sex, money and murder? It's, it's hard to do that, frankly. I, I would say that area of the Bronx. A lot of the homicides were sex, money, murder related. But 1995, for example, the 47th precinct led the city in homicides. Um, yeah, 1995, and that's that's up in the North Bronx, and that that community was, um, you know, kind of a mixed community. A lot of people from Jamaica. I know Jonathan did some work down in Jamaica. 
um, a lot of marijuana traffickers and whatnot. So I, I don't know that you could really say sex money murder had a citywide impact on the murder rate, but it certainly did in the 43rd precinct, <clears throat> which is where they were based out of. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, we're just about an hour here. I, I think uh, it's a good time to sort of conclude. Uh, but before we do, uh, Jonathan, just uh, one thing that people should walk away from after they read your book, what should they walk away knowing about sex, money, murder, and, and certainly the law enforcement officers that were involved in that case? Well, I think, you know, so once the violence sort of starts in these neighborhoods and uh ordinary so people are living in so fear you know the only way to put the so genie so back in the bottle is with you know um strong intervention um to by the police and i think people need to really understand that there's a very serious role for the police in all this um in so stopping the violence um, and I think, you know, people should really be aware that, you know, what's actually happening in, you know, these, uh, to some of these neighborhoods. I mean, unless you actually live in one, you don't really have any idea of the violence or the murder rates and all the rest of it. But for, so people um, who live there and things, it's um, really like horrific. Um, so, uh, you know, and certainly, you know, the vast, so majority of so people in those neighborhoods are just trying to lead sort of to normal lives and to, um, to raise their kids, you know, and without the fear. So, Pete, give me well, one lesson learned from this that you that you took with you. Um, when you went on to, to ATF and you tried to, to drill down to new new agents and new detectives coming up that still of uh, value, you know, this many years later? Well, I kind of touched on it, probably beat it to death. And it's yep. something, George, as you know, when I was the head of training for ATF, I would go down and talk to every single new class of agents and impress upon them the importance of being a good interviewer, uh, of, of listening to people of not being arrogant and, and of having empathy and humility uh, and putting yourself in their shoes, frankly. Look, it's easy to judge these people um, as killers, and I don't condone any act of violence. But if you're going to sit there in judgment and be appalled by their uh, you know, actions without thinking at the same time, like, what, what did they do to get here? Like, how were they formed? Like, if you can't understand people or at least be open to understanding people, you're not going to be at your best. You know, and like again, give credit to Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan told the story very well. He had to do that, and he's obviously not a, a detective or a criminal investigator, but he's an investigator. So, I mean, you know, his success is, is just kind of echoes what I've been talking about all along to these newer agents. And you know, when I was a supervisor, to some of the younger agents who were coming out of the academy, it's all about relationships, and talking to people, and building trust, and, and being, um, in my opinion, the best human being that you can be. Uh, not a pompous ass or arrogant or, or thinking that your badge makes you more important um, than the person that you're talking to. Uh, you know, it's it's not power that comes with that badge. It's responsibility. Nice. nice well said. Nice way to, to close it. Um, 
Jonathan, it's been a great honor and a, and a, and a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's, uh, uh, Thanks, George. It, it's just amazing um, the, the amount of work and, uh, um, that, that you put in to, to get to know these folks on, a, a, on more than just a cursory level and be able to share that story for everybody. Pete, uh, brother, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, this is just one of those things that, that you just fall back on and and uh, and learn so much from um, that uh, I just appreciated getting to get to talk to you about it. Sure. Hey, one thing before we close out, Jonathan, I think I told you this. I've had agents who have read the book who told me that they actually learned a little bit more about how to do their job by reading your book. Oh, <laughs> wow, thank you, Pete. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, Pete, George, I, I can't thank the three is enough for coming on the In the Chill tonight. Really appreciate it. Uh, Jonathan, where could folks find you? You have a website? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so it's Jonathan Green Online. So that's it. And, and the book's available on Amazon and anywhere else. And it's an audible book, too. So oh, great. if you like to hear it in the car, you know. Um, absolutely that, yeah opportunity so and pete you're still uh, pretty active on linkedin yeah somewhat you know i, I haven't i've been writing as much because i've been busy with new hobbies and whatnot yep but uh yeah uh, that's how i communicate with folks i get a lot of insight on that site try to keep it uh apolitical which gets yep. harder and harder these days but yeah <laughs> well thank you all Greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll get this out ASAP. Thanks, Ray. Much appreciate it. Thanks, George. Thanks, Good to see you, Pete. Good to see you too, Jonathan.